that expression of worship is helpful for us. Um, we look to you, we look to you. Who will end his earthly reign? We look to you. And the question for this morning, as you take your Bibles into Exodus chapter 14, is as we continue from last week, what does it look like? What is the testimony of God's preparing a table of blessing for us in the presence of our enemy? That's what we'll look at today. So in Exodus chapter 14, let's read together, starting in verse 5, through the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 14, listen along as I read starting in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. They said, what is this that we've done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 choice chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea of Pihaharoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. The people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. People of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued, went in after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of the fire and the cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavy. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, the water may come back in upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horses. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled 
it, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Water returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord that he used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. We get to this point of the Exodus where we see God illustrating so vividly his salvation for the people. And the question for us to answer is, what does it look like, as we continue from last week, when God makes for you a table, a banquet, in the presence of our enemies? It looks like this. And this is a good picture of what the ultimate salvation of God looks like. This helps us understand the way in which God saves his people. We've been studying through this text and we saw last week that God had done what he said. He had promised that after these generations he would deliver his people. They are finally after the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, driven out. Get out of the land. And in their exit, they take with them the things they'll need to survive the wilderness journey. They don't get on the 14-day trip on the Via Maris, but God gets them to the edges of the, the border, the country, and says, now turn from here and go south. And go down to the way of the sea. They become hemmed in. They're trapped by a body of water. Report gets back to Pharaoh and the national leaders They're wandering around. And you remember from last week, it's not that Pharaoh forgot the previous 10 plagues and that God would rule over, that the God of Israel would rule over Egypt. It's not that Pharaoh forgot. It's that Pharaoh had a theology problem. See, when it comes to gods, Pharaoh thought gods were fickle, that they wouldn't keep their promise, that sure, they might one day want to deliver you and then the next day leave you wandering around lost in the wilderness. And so Pharaoh thinks the God who's stronger than me has abandoned them. They're not stronger than me. They're lost in the wilderness. I'm going to go get them. Now, might I remind you that we have every reason to believe that what Pharaoh wanted was to bring his slave labor force back to Egypt, not, in fact, to kill them in the wilderness. What Pharaoh wants is not to mow them down, but to round them up and bring them back. That's important because in a moment, Israel's going to express an unsubstantiated fear that they are just going to die in the wilderness. So here we come today to this part where God has led them to a point where the only salvation that they can experience is from him. There is no hope in themselves in this moment. They can't walk through the sea on their own. They can't throw rocks and stones at the Egyptian army and hope for victory. They have no hope on their own. And that's the point we get to here. And I want to take us just through two. Two points to direct us through this section of of Exodus 14. The first one is this. They identify what they call a problem. And then we see God revealed to us a provision. So just those two points, a problem and a provision. They'll go like this. From verse 5 to 14, we'll study the problem. From verse, I should have said verse 14. From verse 15 to verse 31, we'll study the provision, okay? So if if you're noting things down, that's the way this section is going to break out in just these two sections. So let's start first by talking about the problem. 
In other words, again, pointing our attention back to the 23rd Psalm, the Lord prepares for us a banquet, a feast in the presence of our enemies. What we have here in Exodus 14 is the presence of the enemy. Okay, the presence of the enemy. And this is what Israel calls the problem. How long had passed since the 10th plague, since the night of the Passover? I don't know for sure. But we come to a point where they are waiting in the wilderness. Where Egypt has buried their dead, perhaps. Imagine the devastation that they're coping with back in Egypt. The death of every firstborn thing. The lament. And it seems like maybe that's being coped with enough where they lift their heads and go, this is unacceptable. We've lost our workforce and we think that their gods abandoned them. Let's go get them. We don't know how long, but this takes place. Look at verse 6. So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him. 600 chosen chariots with officers over them. Plus all the other chariots in Egypt. Chariots are going to become a somewhat significant part of this. Chariots are kind of a common military weapon in this era. Solomon built up a whole array of chariots when he was king over Israel. David, David never liked chariots. Maybe because he had so often been at the losing side of a chariot brigade. But he never really liked chariots. And so therefore, rather than build this large arsenal of chariots for warfare, David found ways to overcome a chariot army. And so he would do things like fight on uneven grounds or mountain sides or soft ground, which is significant to the narrative in front of us. Since the Israelites are still within Egypt, they had come to an encampment and they'd become easy prey for Pharaoh's army. Verse 8, <clears throat> the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We've seen this numerous times, continues to be the case. So Pharaoh pursued the people of Israel. God hardens Pharaoh's heart not because God has decided that the exodus shouldn't happen yet. God has hardened Pharaoh's heart because there's going to be another opportunity for God to show himself over all other authorities in his glory. The mention of the location by the sea of Pihirath in front of Baal Zephon. It might seem redundant. We've already talked about this. But this location tells us a little bit about how they're trapped. You really should see the people hemmed in. And because they're hemmed in, look at verses 10 through 12, there is this complete panic that ensues. The Bible says they looked up and they saw the army marching toward them. They... May I, may I elaborate or, or uh, uh, invite you to imagine that they stumble backward, the mass of people, and they feel their heels dip into the sea. And they realize we can't go that way, and they're coming this way, and we are trapped. In their moment of trap, they call out to God, but they turn quickly to Moses, and they claim two false things. First, they claim falsely that Moses' motive is genocide. They say, did you bring us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? That's sort of a sarcastic criticism. Was there no place to bury us? So you have created this ruse to bring us out and have us killed in the wilderness. Oh. The second thing, the second thing they say is, we are here against our will. We told you to leave us alone and let us go on serving the Egyptians. 
By the way, as I studied that this week, I looked, and maybe you look in your Bible for a cross-reference, some sort of little footnote to where they said that. <laughs> That's not there. There's no cross-reference to, oh, yeah, yeah, remember back in chapter 6 when they said, stop it. We like the way things are. <laughs> Instead, God, or Moses appeared and says, God has looked on you in mercy, and they celebrated. They stopped working. They said, we're getting out. God has shown mercy or taken pity upon us. And now here they say, we told you to just leave us alone. Everything was fine. Oh. There are no less than two vivid displays of just how insane sin is in this chapter. There are no less than two vivid displays. One of them is here in the response of the people. Just this ludicrous behavior because of sinning. The other one is Pharaoh's. When Pharaoh drives his army into the seabed, that's the other one. Ludicrous behavior influenced by the poison that is sin. So they say, didn't we tell you that it was better where we were? And Moses, I, I have to confess, I have to confess that there are two things that I am affected by as I read this story, and, and I would invite you to them as well. One is, I'm reminded how patient I should be with the struggle of common Israelite people. To have witnessed the awesome work of God and then to quickly question if he's going to be faithful for the next event. I have to be humble enough to say, I can point to times in my life that I'm like that. The other one is, I can't really relate to Moses. You see, we get to Moses' demise when he strikes the rock in anger. And I can't really relate to that. Because I'm amazed it took him that long to lose it. This would have been it for me. I would have said, forget it. I've got this one man raft. I'm going across the Red Sea. I don't care what happens. Um, and so I have to be humble enough in both those situations to realize that Moses exhibits a patience right here that I know outside of the Spirit's amazing work in me, I wouldn't be able to do. Verses 13 and 14. God speaks to Moses, and Moses, just with this wonderful, affirming and assuring response, says this. Moses said to the people in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Boy, there is some theological substance in that reassurance. Like that is Moses saying, wait, watch, this is who God is. It's good for us to study this. Sometimes we need to wait, watch, and be reminded who God is. In this section, Moses speaks calmly to them to be patient. And Moses calls their attention to evidence that God is doing what he has said. See, God had already told Moses one last time, you're going to see Egypt, and I am going to strike them down once and for all. And when Moses sees them crest over the horizon with the army, he says, oh, yes, God had said this is it. Today's the day. It's over. But the people don't know this. So Moses tells them, wait, wait. God said this was happening. And the fact that it's happening today is good news. It won't ever happen again. So he reassures the people. And his sermon of sorts to the people is rich with theology. Look, it sounds like this. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see. God is a present peace, a comfort to those who are afraid. Are you afraid? Oh, fear. It's 
terrible. It's terrible. It's paralyzing. It's manipulating. The things you would do in wisdom and stewardship and prudence, you don't do when you have fear. You say, I don't know if I'm afraid. It is to regard anything in the place of God. Fear is to have a regard for something that edges out your trust in God. I don't, I don't know how this is going to go or that's going to go. I don't know what's going to happen here. And to not ask, how is God leading next? What is God doing now? God is a present peace. Moses says to the people. Secondly, God is a deliverer. The Lord is the way of salvation. The Lord is the way of salvation. You have only to be silent. God invites and expects his people to trust. You will not see the Egyptians again. Like I told you before, Moses is, is comforted by the presence of the Egyptians because he's heard there's going to be one last time where God's going to show his power over them and once and for all eliminate any concern for Egypt. And then lastly, the Lord will fight for you. God is the champion over evil. God is. You remember, they're not popular anymore. I don't know how many of you still use bumper stickers. Uh, maybe, maybe you still have some travel places and get a bumper sticker and throw it on the car because you don't care about resale value and those sorts of things. And, uh, and uh, you ever see a bumper sticker just all over the back of a car and you're like, mm, good luck. <laughs> I don't know how many of you still do something like a bumper sticker, but you remember those old old bumper stickers? Like, God is my (laughs) co-pilot? What an awful expression of the Jesus movement of the 70s and 80s. God is my co-pilot. And and Moses doesn't say, hey, listen, you you find some stuff on the ground, pick it up, and you and God are going to fight. This Egyptian problem is going to be taken care of. He doesn't say that. God will fight for you. I would invite you to have a thankfulness that God doesn't say he will give you good weapons to go and fight your foe. God says, I will fight your greatest foe for you. Okay? Moses preaches this, and it assures the people. They had said, it would have been better for us to serve there than to die here. I, I want to say just a word about slaves about being enslaved. Uh, Before I move away from this part of the problem, sometimes we misidentify the problem. What I mean is, they thought the problem is they were going to die in the wilderness. They thought it was not a problem in this moment that they stay in the Egyptian captivity and enslavement. In this moment, they say, that would have been a solution to this problem. Doing the bidding of sin would be better than being in this predicament of hopelessness. Um, So let me give an example. I hope that you are walking in in relational, discipling life together with people in church. And you are standing at an impasse where you say, I either need to continue to keep my sin private from my Christian friend, counselor, advisor, discipler, or... I need to admit it and invite them into my discipleship from it. 
Okay? So you have a Christian friend, and you know it's time to say, I have been living in sin, infidelity. I have been living in infidelity. And you know that to expose that sin to this particular Christian friend, this friend is going to say, you must confess that to your spouse. And confessing that to your spouse is going to feel like death. And you might be tempted to say something like they did. Serving the sin is better than the consequence of confession. And Jesus confronts this in Mark 9. He says, to the contrary, it is better for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven maimed than to spend eternity in hell whole. That, that is the spiritual equivalent of this. To say, ah, I'll just, I'll just keep my sin and I'll go into its condemnation whole. I, I, I want to just warn you because I do think we have a lot in common with the Egyptian or the Israelite complaint. It would have been better to stay a slave than to stand here in the wilderness afraid. Please don't let that be a motto of your life regarding your spiritual enslavement to sin. It is never better to remain enslaved to your sin. This is seen as the problem. In fact, we know from the story, and it's easy for us to sit here 3,000 years later and say, oh, no, no, it's not a problem. It's an opportunity. And it is, but that's a little trite, isn't it? It's not very sympathetic. But we know that what they're calling a problem is a great opportunity for God to display his faithfulness. Okay? And that's what we want to get into next. So, so 5 through 14 is describing a problem. The, the Israelite concern and complaint, the criticism, the scenario, army, massive army, massive army, sea, problem. Let's look at how the Scripture reveals what our God is like in his providence. Let's just look at what God does when his people think they are in an insurmountable problem. Verse 15 through 31, describe for us the events of the crossing of the Red Sea. I'm going to do something right now that I've never done before, and I'll never do it again in a sermon. This is the one time I am going to show you my socks. Can you see that? These are my Exodus socks. Crossing the Red Sea. See this here on the back? I got these a couple weeks ago for Christmas from a friend here in church. They've been laying on my desk waiting for today. My Exodus socks. I promise I'll never ask you to look at my socks again. This event, this event, this one thing in the Exodus narrative, in the Pentateuch, becomes so significant, so synonymous with the salvation of God that still 3,000 years later they're doing things like making novelty socks. This event that we're going to study is the one that the psalmist and the patriarchs point back to and say, don't forget the Red Sea. Deuteronomy 11.2, consider today, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. Don't forget, when Moses writes Deuteronomy, he says, don't forget his signs and deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all his land that he did to Egypt, the horses and the chariots. Don't forget what God has done. Don't forget how he showed himself, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow back over them as they pursued you. Psalm 106. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. And he led them through the deep on dry ground. Isaiah 51.10 
Was it not you who dried up the sea, O God, the waters of the great deep, who made the depth of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? This event becomes a vivid testimony of God's covenant, faithful salvation. The first thing we see is that God sends Israel into the sea. Verse 16. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. They had assumed they were hopelessly trapped. God's plan was something that was totally unreasonable, but completely convenient for the Creator. Sending His people through the water on dry land, the dry lake bottom, the sea floor. It's completely convenient and easy for God to harden the heart of the Egyptians who would pursue them into the sea bottom and then become overwhelmed with anxiety and fear as their wheels get bogged or heavy. It's easy for God to display his undeniable exaltation over every other name. It's easy for God to show the people his presence standing between his people and their enemy. It's easy for God to send a wind out of the east and divide the sea. So that the language is the walls of water built up high. The, 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 the picture is supposed to mean that of a a great city wall. Water. Walled up on the right. And water. Walled up on the left. And Israel crosses the Red Sea. On dry land. The Bible tells us that the east wind parted the sea. It reminds us of back in chapter 10. When he sends an east wind that drive the locust in. It reminds me a little bit too of the New Testament. Like in John 3, when Jesus is sharing the gospel with Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born of spirit. Spirit. Yes, the spirit. You don't see it, but you can tell what it's doing. And here, the hand of God might not be visible to their naked eye, but what God's doing is obvious. He drove the sea back and the waters walled up on both sides. It's clear from the description given that God had moved the water back and the people walked forward on dry ground. Let me say just a word. This is a bit of a, a commercial. We, we could spend weeks discussing the geography. I took a Bible geography class in seminary. Uh, I like Bible geography. We could spend weeks studying the geography of the Exodus. In particular, where exactly did the crossing of the Red Sea happen? And we could spend weeks. Do you know that until the mid-80s, there was a very popular liberal idea that in fact the people of Israel had crossed what is called the Sea of Reeds? The Sea of Reeds. It's kind of a swampy area, like you can picture in the name, the reeds, the cattails that grow there because of the swampy land. And so, let me just tell a story. It's uh, facetious. It's fictional. There is a young girl who had attended her church Sunday school class when they were studying the crossing of the Red Sea. And the young girl says, this is amazing. God made all that water to open up so they passed through the deep sea. And her teacher said, well, well, it, yeah, but it's not quite like that. 
It was actually the Sea of Reeds, which is more like a swampy area, well, well to the north. And so they did walk through this swampy ground, and God kind of dried it up for a little bit so they could walk through that ankle-deep water, but probably the water was only about six inches deep. And the young girl says, that is amazing. God drowned Egyptians in six inches of water. No matter what way you cut it, this is a story about an amazing God. And so we're not going to debate, but I do believe that all of the pictorial evidence of this narrative account tells us that God drove a great, vast body of water to divide and wall up on each side, and the people walked under what would have been the water through this channel opened up by the east wind on dry ground. The people look back on this moment as a vivid demonstration of God's salvation. There are a couple of imperative elements in this account of salvation. One of them is that what was going to be provided to them was going to be received by faith, not by function. The other one is it came to them as they confessed their hopelessness. God's salvation comes truly to those people who know that without it, there's no hope. I'm reminded often about the convicting account of the tax collector and the Pharisee at the temple. And the Pharisee goes close to the temple, into the inner courtroom, and says, thank you, I'm not like other people. If I may paraphrase, thank you that I didn't need to be saved from certain doom. And the tax collector says, forgive me, I am a sinner. My fate was damnation. Salvation comes truly to those people who have confessed without his intervention, I'm doomed. And this becomes one of those vivid examples of just that salvation. Yep. This doesn't usually happen. But it did. And I don't know how it works. Here we go. Look at verse 23. God manipulates the Egyptian army. There are four difficulties that the Egyptian army falls prey to as God leads in his provision. The first is they pursued the people into the sea. They should have never pursued the people into the sea. But sin caused them to be delusional. They suffered from God's direct debilitation of their minds. They become anxious while down in the base of the sea, and then God provides a trouble for the chariot wheels. It doesn't say exactly what the trouble is, but it seems likely that the narrow chariot wheel had gotten into that soft sea bottom and bogged down. Now, look, this is completely practical, right? All these Israelites on foot go through the Red Sea. They're not yet out, but here comes the army. Now, it is no salvation of God to allow the Egyptian army to just slaughter the Israelites at the bottom of the sea. So the Israelites need to get out the other side before the Egyptians catch them, right? So what does God provide? He provides a bogged down chariot. The wheels became heavy, the Bible says. When that happened, and they looked up, Anxiety sets in, fear, terror, chaos. Some chariots trying to get out the other side, some chariots turning around trying to get out this side. People abandoning chariots that are stuck and running so that the chariots that aren't yet stuck can't pass. Chaos ensues. And the Bible tells us what time of day it happened. 
during the third watch of the night, from about 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., the last watch of nighttime, before the sunrise. Would you just pause for a second and see your stuck chariot at about 3.30 in the morning? And the light is fading. It's very dim. But you happen to look to your right and left and realize where you are. And you see a wall of water on one side and on the other. And you realize that you have become hemmed in. And they cry, let us flee from Israel. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. What has Egypt confessed? Their God is not like ours. We were wrong to assume that their God was fickle, that he'd be with them one day and gone the next. He's still here fighting for them. Would you confess with the Egyptian soldiers that that's what our God's like? He doesn't one day provide us salvation just the next day to be gone. Just one day to be caring for us and providing for us, and the next day we're on our own. The sea drowns the Egyptian army, 26 through 29. God is commanding Moses. Moses is leading the people. And verse 27 Verse 27 is a clue to what the whole day is about. It's a clue. And the clue is found in this statement. When the morning appeared. So third watch, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., they're stuck. Water, water, panic. The sun comes up. The panic increases. That was water. Look how tall on our right and on our left. Look ahead. The last Israelite has walked up the shore. Israelites get to the shore and turn around and look back. Egyptians caught at the seabed look forward. Sun is up. Amon-Ra is watching. The sun god. Egyptians believe that every night when the sun went down, Amon-Ra died. But that in his great power, that the sun rise was his resurrection. Every day, death, resurrection, death, resurrection. If I may just poke some fun at the irony of Amon-Ra watching this unfold. For any good, faithful Egyptian to say, ah, ah, I'm on rise here. The tide is turning. This might not go bad for us. Our God is present. Their God is present. We have a fighting chance. The sun, the Egyptians, and the Israelites all witness what happens next. The walls crash back in And the Bible tells us that every single Egyptian who had entered the sea dies. Quickly, I don't know that that means every Egyptian. It's not what it says. It says every Egyptian who went into the sea dies. I don't know if they all went in. I don't know. But be careful not to assume that. I don't even know if Pharaoh died. I'm not positive. The Bible never tells us. What the Bible does tell us is you're never going to see them again. So there's no narrative account of Pharaoh later on. I don't know what kind of leader he was, if he was the kind of leader that sends people or if he was the kind of leader that leads people. I don't know. But what was witnessed that day was what was meant to be witnessed, that every single one of them in the sea died. And God showed his greatness. To summarize, God delivered them. God fortified their faith. Look at verse 30 and 31. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day. This this is why Old Testament prophets 
the psalmist. This is why they point back, because they say, don't forget, God saves. And the vivid illustration that we have is the crossing of the Red Sea. He saved that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had against the Egyptians. So, what's the outcome? The people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord. And in His servant Moses. This is a partial account. The, the written narrative. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be in chapter 15. And we're going to hear Moses restate the account in poetry, in song. The song of Moses. Before their enemies, they witnessed God save them. They learned again that God, who had promised, was faithful to save. When they stood on the seashore in the presence of their enemies, they learned the vivid lesson, God prepares a banquet table in the presence of those enemies. Before our enemies, God provides. All right, let me finish with this. Pharaoh is not your enemy, right? No one's ever spent an evening in anxious trepidation. Ooh, Pharaoh. Right? It's not your enemy. The Bible tells us we have an enemy. That enemy is called death. Death is such a formidable foe for us. Because the sting of death is sinning. The sting of our sinning is death. What a terror for living beings. Yet, we get to 1 Corinthians 15. Grave? Death? Where is your opposition? Where is your threat? Where is your sting? When we face the enemy of death, God provided a banquet. That banquet for us in the presence of our enemy, is the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. God proved what he had illustrated here, he was going to faithfully do and provide salvation, the way through our most formidable enemy, death. The, the soul deadness of sin the eternal deadness of hell. At the cross, God provides salvation. A banquet for sinners in the presence of our enemy. I, I just want to say to anyone here this morning that lives with the fear of death. Death is a significant foe. Death, death is sometimes a terrifying foe. Um, a lot of you have lived with the anxiety of facing death. Maybe it was in a moment. Maybe it was in a near-death experience. Maybe it was an overwhelming diagnosis. And you have known the fear of death. And you can relate a little bit to the people standing on the shore and saying, we're going to die. We've come out here to die. And in that certain despair, you, you can't conquer death. You're not going to be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and overcome death. And in that despair, friend, 
I want you to know that death is real, but the banquet that is ours in the presence of that enemy is Jesus. So, to simplify all that, it is appointed to man once to die and then to be judged. The punishment for our sinning is death. All of us have sinned, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. Christ has been sent. Jesus, the Christ, the promised Messiah, has been sent from God in amazing benevolent mercy to go to the cross and face our foe and die in our place. But would that mean salvation? Three days later, he rose in absolute victory from the dead. And all of us participating in him, enjoying and feasting on that banquet, we eat of his death. We drink of his resurrection. And God provides salvation in the presence of our enemy death. In Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, every Christian soul celebrates that confession. We hear about our feasting on the work of Christ. And our spirit leaps for joy. But Lord, in our fellowship, thankfully, there are still people who don't know that salvation. Lord, maybe there are some of your people here who feel like their, their heels are wet in the sea and the enemy of death presses on them and they wonder how you will save. I pray that today in that, in that brief explanation of Jesus Christ as the Savior, I pray that your Spirit would draw them to that truth, make it to come to light and, and press heavy on their heart and that they would know the way through, the way of salvation, the provision of Jesus Christ for this universal problem. So we pray to the God of salvation, the Lord of the harvest, that today you would draw people even from our gathering to yourself. Father, we pray that as we rest in the assurance of your salvation, as we see it so vividly, so vividly displayed in the account of the crossing of the Red Sea, we pray that we would more uh, joyfully, more eagerly, more consistently walk by faith, knowing that you who have promised us is faithful, that you have always been, and that all these things have pointed to that faithful salvation at the cross on our behalf. So encourage your church to function in light of what you've done us in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with me. We get to sing again.